Hey, I'm looking forward to it. I've been praying for you guys. Give me a good time. Give me a good time. As we, uh, as we begin together this morning, let me, let me start by just asking you a question. Have you ever found yourself being swept along by the crowd? Has that ever happened to you? It's kind of an interesting uh, phenomena when that, when that occurs. I can remember uh, a year or so ago, I guess it was, maybe two years now, but anyway, we, uh, Carol and I were going to, uh, down to watch a baseball game at Angels Stadium. And uh, our, our uh, school where we graduated, University of Massachusetts, was having an alumni night at Angel Stadium so we could go watch the Red Sox beat the Angels because uh, they could actually do it in those days. And uh, so it must have been several years ago. And uh, so we were going to meet all of the alumni that lived in the Southern California area from the University of Massachusetts and go to this alumni night at the Angels game. So we you know, drove down there and pulled into the parking lot and so forth. And, and uh, I think it said on the brochure something about the meeting near the Big A or whatever it was. So we kind of pulled in and we parked and we get out of the car. And, and my wife said, do you know where you're going? And I said, I'm a man. <laughs> and, and she said, yeah, I know, but do you know where you're going? <laughs> I don't need to ask directions. <laughs> I have this innate compass right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, I see this just crowd of people, and they're, they're walking, you know, around the outside of Angel Stadium. And I said, well, just follow these people. They look like they know where they're going. And uh, she said, I really think we ought to ask. And I said, no, nah, we'll just, you know, they know where they're going. So, so we get in with the crowd, and we're, we're kind of swept along. And we walked a long way around Angel Stadium. Yeah, she's nodding still. Her feet still hurt, and it's been several years. And so all the way around where you, you know, you go in where there's the ball caps and all that sort of thing. And, and then we get, and uh, we get inside, and she says, now where are we going? And I said, well, uh, we're supposed to meet where the food court area is. And she said, well, where's that? And I said, I think it's on the other side. <laughs> I think it's on the other side, actually. So, so we, at that point, uh, she prevailed upon me and asked directions, and they said, oh, yeah, you know, you got to go around. And so we had to walk all the way back around. So the bottom line is here, we walked almost completely, effectively, around Angel Stadium. And uh, if we'd have just gone in the little narrow door right where we had parked, things would have been good. And so I just tell you that because that can happen. You can, you can get caught up in the crowd and, and just sort of swept along, and you may end up in a place where you don't want to be. So open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. And we are looking this morning at verses 15 and following. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. And contextually, what's, what's going on here, and I, I told you this last week, but it bears repeating, Jesus is drawing to a conclusion his Sermon on the Mount. This is, uh, in Matthew's gospel, the first sermon of the king. This is his manifesto. This is the first According to Matthew, the way he records it, it is the first words we hear from the mouth of the coming king. And so what he has to say is quite important. And it's been going on now for quite a long time. It took us longer to get through it than it took him to preach it, clearly. But uh, chapters 5, 6, and the first part of chapter 7 are his sermon. And he essentially finishes in verse 6 with the instructive portion of that sermon, and, and he is now beginning his appeal. He is, he is appealing to the crowds to do something with what they have been hearing. We noted again last time, and again, I'll repeat these things because it's, 
it, uh, no trouble for me, and it would do you good. So in chapter 5, verse 1, you notice it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the Sermon on the Mount is for his disciples, for his followers, but it is not only for them, but it is for the crowd that's on the periphery around them. He is speaking to them and through them to those that are interested in the phenomena of this one who claims to be Messiah. The Pharisees and Sadducees are part of that crowd and likely congregated together at some, you know, section in the crowd. And Jesus, of course, is using them as a foil throughout the sermon to continually point to their deficient understanding of the Old Testament and to contrast that with his true uh, interpretation and exposition of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. He arrives now here at the end, and he is appealing to everyone to do something with what they've heard, and in particular, he is appealing to this crowd. He is calling them to acknowledge him as their king and to, by grace through faith, receive him as Messiah and follow him and his interpretation of the law of Moses outlined here in the Sermon on the Mount. So he is calling for them to embrace him and his kingdom ethic and turn away from the scribes and the Pharisees under whom they have been brought up and taught and embodies the current religious system of their day. This is a very dramatic uh, call to turn. You see, at the end of chapter 7, that reality in verse 28, Jesus had finished these words. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He is not merely citing other scribes, other Pharisees, other ancient rabbis and teachers of the law, but he is saying, I am the authoritative interpreter of your Old Testament, of your Bible. Right? You've heard that it was said, and he used that often, but I say to you. And they are absolutely amazed by this kind of authoritative, powerful preaching. He is appealing to them to follow the narrow path. We saw that in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. He is calling them to enter into Messiah's kingdom. Remember, John the Baptist came proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is is available to you, Israel, in the person of your king who is right here in front of you. And the entrance into that kingdom comes through a narrow gate, a narrow path. A path on which there are few travelers. Few travelers. In contrast, there is a a broad way. There is a a wide gate. There is a, a popular approach that seems like the right way to go. We talked last time that likely, as it were, there would be a sign over the broad path that would say, this way to the kingdom. And it's only when one enters through that gate and that path that they find out the bridge is out and you plunge, as it were, to eternal destruction. There is the narrow path, the narrow gate, the one that is difficult to find, the one that requires much of you, the one that few people are willing to follow. And by this, uh, Jesus is foreshadowing really the outcome of his public ministry, isn't he? Because in the end, the nation will choose, the vast majority of the nation will choose the broad path. The broad path is representative of Pharisaical Judaism of the day. It It is the religion of the people of that day. And in the end, they will choose that over the narrow path. 
Now, it's interesting here in verse 15 that Jesus, immediately after this this, uh, teaching and exhortation about these two paths, introduces the topic of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He does that because he, he wants the people to guard themselves against those who would seek to hinder them from entering into the narrow path and would instead be saying, hey, this way, come on, follow the crowd, we're, we're going this way to the kingdom. Seeking to usher people onto the broad path and to pull them away from the narrow path. Now clearly, both contextually from this sermon and then later in Matthew's gospel, and particularly in chapter 23, with his scathing denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, it's pretty clear that at least um, a first interpretation would be that the false prophets he's talking about here in verse 15 would be the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's shocking. That is an absolutely shocking idea. What he is warning the people about is that their teachers are actually wolves who seek their destruction. Now, that would cause you to sit up and take notice. That would cause one to sit up and take notice. Now, here's how I want to take a look at this section I want to do something a little bit different than we most normally do, and and that is normally we exposit a section and we explain it and we we exhort based on that that exposition. And we will be working our way through these verses 15 to 20, but I want to do it a little bit differently, and and that is that I I want to um, take this time this morning, and it's not going to happen in all one week. I had the best of intentions. So this is a two-parter. Go ahead and mark it down, okay? I want, to, I want to teach you this morning and next. I want our time together to be more instructive and more about what you need to know as opposed to something you need to do. So we want, we, want to, we want to take a broader look at the topic of false prophets this morning and next week. I want to take the time to take a, a broader look, a, a more comprehensive look, so Old and New Testament look at the subject of false prophets and false teachers. So essentially what we're going to do is have a Bible study together. We're going to have a Bible study together on the, on the topic of false prophets. What that means is that we are going to look at a lot of Scriptures, a lot of Scriptures. You will get the most out of this if you turn as I call them out, and I'll give you time to get there, and the screens will show you where to find them and so forth. So if you will get the most out of this week and next if you actually engage yourself to the process of following along. If you don't, you're going to zone out. You're going to zone out. Okay? So we're going to, we're going to do this together, and I think it's going to be profitable for us, and I think it's necessary for us because of the dangers that it's always represented by false prophets and false teachers. So let's just begin with a simple question together, Okay? First, what is a prophet? Let's just begin with that question. What is a prophet? Now, the word prophet appears three, over 300 times in the Old Testament, so it's a very common word, and almost 125 times in the New Testament. So it's a very commonly used term. There is also the associated uh, term prophetess, uh, the female version, um, but it's far more rare, six times in the Old Testament and two times in the New. So prophet, male prophet is the overwhelming majority. There are a few mentions of the prophetess, six in the Old, two in the New. Now here's the definition. What is a prophet? A prophet is a person who acts as God's mouthpiece. A prophet is a person who acts as God's mouthpiece 
passing on what they have received from God. Let me give you that again. A prophet is a person who acts as God's mouthpiece, passing on what they have received from God. Now, prophets are not self-appointed. They are not self-appointed, but he or she are commissioned by God to speak God's Word for him. Johnny, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a prophet. you got a better chance of being a fireman. Okay? You just can't do that. God chooses. God appoints. His mouthpiece to humanity. The prophet. Now let me show you this. So go all the way back to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus 7 is the definitive text with regard to, the, to a description of the prophet. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, is the definitive text. Mark it down. Somebody says, well, what's a prophet? And you say, well, a prophet is, is a person who acts as the mouthpiece for God. They speak what they receive from God. And they say, well, that sounds great, but how do you know that? And you say, well, if you go to Exodus 7, verses 1 and 2, you will see it. So let me take you there. Exodus 7, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh... And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I make you, Moses, as God to Pharaoh and Aaron as your prophet. That is, in relationship to Pharaoh, Moses, you will be like God. But you won't speak to him. Your prophet will be your mouthpiece. He will speak to him, and that is Aaron. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you, Moses, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Now, Moses is obviously not God, so God is telling Moses what to say, but, but vis-a-vis Pharaoh, Moses stands in for God, and Aaron as his spokesman, okay? The prophet, the role of the prophet in relationship to Pharaoh is Aaron the prophet, Moses God. You can see this as well in uh, chapter 4. It's worth turning there. You're in the same general vicinity. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Exodus chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. So this is speaking again about about Aaron, and the answer is, Moses, you put the words in Aaron's mouth, and then Aaron speaks them. You put the words in his mouth, he will speak them. So, what is a prophet? A prophet is a man or a woman who has been appointed by God to be his mouthpiece, to speak only what God has given him to speak. He speaks on behalf of God. All right, you got that? Good. Now, immediately, uh, you can understand there'd be a danger here. There's an immediate danger here, and that is that any time God speaks, it is incumbent upon humanity to listen and to what? Obey. Any time God speaks, God's people must listen and they must obey. And that then puts people in danger. And it puts him in the danger of being deceived or manipulated by those who claim to be speaking for God when, in fact, they are not. If God says it, then you've got to do it. So if someone tells you that God said this, then if it's true that God has said this, then you've got to do it. 
Otherwise, you are refusing your own creator. And that puts you in a dangerous zone because how do you know? How do you know what this person, if they've said this is true? So throughout the Scriptures, the the people of God in both the Old and New Testament are frequently reminded about the dangers that are, are posed by those who claim to speak for God but instead are actually speaking out of the darkness of their own heart. There are many, many, many warnings, many warnings with regard to the prophet and the false prophet. Now, when we move to the New Testament, we find that the warnings about the false prophet seem to blend into the warnings about the false teacher. So, for example, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. But, Peter writes, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So Peter begins to to sort of bridge the Testaments here, and he says, hey, in the Old Testament, there was a lot of warning about the false prophet. Here in the New Testament time, the false prophet is definitely the danger, but there is this false teacher that is equally dangerous. So for our purposes, I'm going to combine the two of them together. Now, why, let me, let me ask this question. Why does Peter sort of combine the threat in one verse? Why does he, why does he pull it together in one verse? And, and I think the reason for that is, is that by the time Peter is writing, and, and Peter is a later epistle, sometime probably around AD 67, when Peter is writing, the local churches have been planted. The, the, the Pauline mission, as it were, church planting mission, has been accomplished. Right? Paul has been through his three missionary journeys, and churches have been planted all over the, the Mediterranean uh, uh, basin, as it were. And within these local churches, the, the, the instruction role is migrating from the prophet to the teacher. To the pastor teacher. Let me show you this. Take you um, back to the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 20. And by the way, this is all introduction, okay? We haven't even gotten to, um, to the thing yet, so we're just warming up. So Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 19 and verse 20. So what is happening here is essentially I think that the, that the role of the prophet for spiritual instruction within the local church is, is being passed off, handed off as it were, as, as the churches grow and mature and as the New Testament begins to be written to the role of the teacher within the church. So Ephesians chapter 2, the end of verse 19, talking about the household of God, verse 20 this household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that's New Testament prophets, not Old Testament, okay? Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the foundation of the church is, is built upon the apostles and the prophets. Well, anyone who's ever done any kind of construction knows that you lay a foundation how often? Just once. The foundation goes down, and then the home has begun to be built. The building is erected on top of the foundation. And the foundation, we're told by Paul here, and by the way, this is a, this is a prison epistle, probably around AD 61, so five, six years prior to Peter in Second Peter, says here that we have a foundation that has been laid. You move over to, um, to chapter 4 of Ephesians, same epistle, And Paul continues, And he that is God gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor, it says pastors and teachers, I think better rendering of the Greek would be pastor teachers, to to, um, uh, descriptions of one person. 
He gave some as apostles, some as prophets. Why? To lay a foundation, according to chapter 2, verse 20. Some evangelists and some pastor teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and so forth. So there is a, there is a transfer that's going on. As the church begins to mature, as the Scriptures begin to be written and circulated, the role of the prophet, that is the, the person, and I'll just say he because of, you know, the vast majority of them are, are hymns. So the role of the prophet where he speaks for God directly into this fledgling church diminishes. The need for that diminishes. Now think with me on this for a moment. Think about the pastoral epistles. I'm thinking about 1 Timothy and Titus. In those pastoral epistles, there's a, there's a rather lengthy description of the qualifications in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy and chapter 1 of Titus, a lengthy uh, description of the character qualifications of who? Elders. Okay? Elders. And one of the requirements for elder not just the character, you know, you got all those character things, but there's one functional requirement of elders. It is that they have to be able to do what? They have to be able to teach. They have to be able to teach. And so it's interesting that, that in my mind it's interesting at least, that, that Paul spends the time writing to Timothy in a church telling him, according to chapter 3 and verse 15, that, Timothy, hey, I'm coming, but in case I'm delayed in getting there, this is what, how things ought to operate until I get there. And he says, your elders need to have these qualifications, character qualifications, and they need to be able to teach. Why doesn't he say that about prophets? Why no character qualifications for prophets? Timothy, this is, this is how you'll look for prophets in your midst. You know, they need to be husbands of one wives and, you know, temperate and prudent and so forth and so on. He doesn't say any of that. He functions. He, he, he concentrates his instruction to the church with regard to how to qualify their pastor teachers, their elders, because they are the ones who are going to be maturing the church through instruction in the Scriptures. So false prophets, false teachers in the New Testament are the threat. Okay, so let's start, uh, let's, let's do this. I want to look at seven, <laughs> that's why I told you there's no way we're going to get there, seven characteristics of false prophets. Seven characteristics of false prophets. So that we do not fall into their deadly embrace. Seven characteristics of false prophets. So that we do not fall into their deadly embrace. Number one, number one, false prophets, false teachers are Christ-denying. Number one, they are Christ-denying. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that they always attack Jesus' person or his work. They always attack Jesus' person or his work. There can be some significant doctrinal differences and still fall within the guidelines, the, the boundaries, the fences, as you will, of orthodoxy. Still be brothers and sisters in Christ and be profoundly wrong on some things. But if you get Jesus wrong, then you are not a Christian at all. There is no room here. And the false teachers, the false prophets, continually attack this basic foundation. They go after Christ. They deny Christ. And in the context of, of Matthew 7, what they're doing is they are, they are directing people away from the narrow path to the what? To the broad path, to the lie. Come this way, you can have a Jesus of your own conception. Join with us, right? Let's take our doctrinal statement and reduce it to the lowest common denominator. I love Jesus, yes I do, I love Jesus, how about you, right? No, not at all. They attack Christ. 
Let me show you this. So let's go to Acts chapter 13. And we'll see it in action. Acts chapter 13. This is Paul and Barnabas, their first missionary journey. They arrive at uh, Salamis. They begin to proclaim, verse 5, the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their helper. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So in the book of Acts, when they encounter this false prophet... They encounter him because he is contradicting the message that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. What message are Paul and Barnabas preaching? What have they been sent out to preach, to proclaim? It is that there is life in no one else but who? Because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so they are, they are this man, this false prophet, is actively opposing the gospel. And in particular, the gospel which centers in Christ. He is opposing Christ. And so Paul blinds him. Paul blinds him. We see another illustration in 2 Peter chapter 2. So we'll shoot over to the right here to 2 Peter chapter 2. This may be a three-part sermon. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But the false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They are denying, it says, the master... Who bought them? The master who bought them. It's an interesting expression. I'm not going to take the time to do it now, but you can mark this down, check it out if you want. And that is in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 5 and 6, you see a very similar expression where it talks about Israel denying the God who bought them. Basically, what Peter is saying here about these false teachers is that they are denying the lordship of Jesus Christ over them. They are attacking and denying the lordship of Jesus Christ over them. They are attacking the person and the work of Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, we see again the denying of Christ, the first characteristic of the false prophet, false teacher. 1 John 2, 
Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. They deny Jesus is Messiah. And they deny the Father's witness, according to verse 23, to that reality. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah. What does that mean? What that means is that they deny that Jesus is divine. It's a denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is the divine Messiah. The Father has given witness to that reality, right? John's Gospel speaks about that frequently. They also deny, by denying Him that He is Christ, He is Messiah, they deny that He is the Savior. So they deny His deity and they deny His role as the Redeemer, the Savior. Again, attacks upon the person or the work of Jesus Christ. Same book, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. They deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the humanity of Christ. That is, that they are denying the God-man himself upon whom all of redemptive history hangs. They are attacking him. They attack his deity. They attack his humanity. They attack his mission as Savior. Everything about who he is and what he has done, they are seeking to undermine. Jude, just keep flipping to the right here, Jude speaks of the same sort of thing, verses 3 and 4. Jude says, beginning in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, the same basic attacks. It's an attack upon the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and in particular here, it's His Lordship in the area of moral restraint. They're attacking the lordship of Christ in the area of moral restraint. What they're basically saying is it doesn't matter how you live. Jesus doesn't care how you live. Well, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that that is absolutely not true. Jesus cares how we live very much. Because how we live provides the evidence of how we believe. The doing follows the believing. So they attack here the Lordship of Christ in the area of moral restraint. Notice, by the way, uh, just let your eyes slip over to verse 11. Woe to them, Jude says, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet. Balaam was a false prophet. Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the people as they came out of the Exodus. You remember? Every time he tried to curse them, God transformed his words and they became a blessing. And Balak was getting rather frustrated, not getting what he was paying for. 
And so the, the narrative sort of ends there and it moves on. And then we're introduced in chapter 25 of Numbers to what's called the sin of Baal Peor. The sin of Baal Peor. And there at Baal Peor, what happened is the people began to practice idolatry with the inhabitants of the land and engage in gross sexual immorality. And we learn later in, for example, Numbers chapter 33, that it was Balaam who gave the advice to Balak and said, okay, if we can't curse them, what we can do is we can entrap them, we can entice them, we can draw them, if you like, from the narrow way onto the broad path. And we will do it by appealing to them sensually. Sensual appeal. Fleshly appeal. Turn, um, I don't have a slide for this, but that's okay. If you're uh, quick, you can get there. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2. This is the message to the church at Pergamum. Jesus says there to the angel of the church at Pergamum, verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of of immorality. So we're not guessing about what Balaam did. It's clearly given to us here. Clearly given here. It is the denial. We take what Jude has written. We add in here what Jesus reveals through John in Revelation 2. Put them together. And what we see is that the the Christ denial that that Jude is talking about, the the false prophet uh, uh, Balaam, what he brought, was a denial of the Lord Jesus over the realm of moral restraint. The realm of moral restraint. They denied Jesus' lordship with regard to ethical, moral behavior. They said you can live however you want. Just follow Jesus and indulge your sexual passions and everything's good. It is the sin of Balaam. It is the work of the false prophet. So the first characteristic of the false prophet is that they are Christ-denying. Second, second characteristic, they are deceptive. They are Christ-denying, and they are deceptive. So for this, I'm going to take you back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, page 693. You got that pew Bible going. They are deceptive. Beware, verse 15, of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now earlier, verses uh, 1 through 6 here, Jesus has, has spoken about judging, right? And he says we need to judge with humility. And then in verse 6, he says we need to judge with wisdom. We're not to give and throw what is holy before the dogs and the swine, right? So we call it the dogs and the hogs. And so it is easy to identify who they are. It is easy to identify who they are. It is not so easy to identify the false prophet, the false teacher, because they are masters of disguise. They are masters of disguise. They dress up like shepherds, presenting themselves as authorized spokesmen of God who will point people to the way of life. They come to you. Do you see it in verse 15? They come to you in sheep's clothing. Come to you in sheep's clothing, the clothing of sheep. Now, there is some difference of opinion on this with regard to whether it is they come dressed as sheep or whether they come dressed as shepherds. I'm persuaded that it is they come dressed as shepherds. In the Old Testament, the prophet was often recognized by the garments that they wore. They wore a a sort of a hairy robe of the prophet. In Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 4, Zechariah 13, 4, the prophet there writes about the false prophets who don this prophet's robe in order to deceive people. 
They put on the clerical garb, if you like, in order to deceive people. Zechariah 13.4, he warns about that. In the New Testament, the, the shepherds of sheep, literal shepherds, often wore clothing made from the wool of sheep. And so the false prophets would don the clothing of sheep and, I believe, pass themselves off or seek to pass themselves off as a true shepherd. They would come to you, verse 15 again, dressed as if they were a shepherd. But they're not a shepherd. They're actually a ravenous wolf. Now, this emphasis on the deceptive nature of the false prophet, the false teacher, occurs all over the Scriptures. They are very, very deceptive. In Matthew's own gospel, chapter 24, so you can turn to the right there, Jesus makes some really amazing statements here, chapter 24 of Matthew's gospel. Verse 11 Chapter 24 and chapter 25 are called the Olivet Discourse. It's another lengthy sermon of Jesus, and it's dealing with the events of his second coming. And he says, verse 11, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. At the end, many false prophets will arise and will be quite effective in misleading many. Verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. That is is really a stunning statement. Stunning statement. They will arise and they will show great signs and wonders. Do you remember earlier in Acts 13 when we we read about uh, Bar-Jesus, right? The Jewish false prophet? Remember it said he was a magician. He was a magician. He was able to do things that were impressive in this realm. And this is something that the, that the false prophets uh, frequently do themselves. They, they seek to deceive by mimicking, by imitating the true prophets of God. And when it gets to the end times, in the providence of God, God so allows things that these signs and wonders become so amazing, so credible, as it were, that it would mislead, if that were possible, even the elect. Stunning. We read in the book of Revelation that that the, the, the image of the beast actually begins to be able to speak as one of these false signs, false miracles. During the tribulation, and that's the topic here of chapters 24 and 25, the church is gone by the rapture. The false prophets arise, and their purpose is to draw people away. Draw people away, and they do it through these deceptive prophecies, these deceptive signs and wonders. Romans chapter 16 is another interesting passage speaking about the deceptive nature, the false prophet, the false teacher. Paul's writing here the church in Rome. He's closing out his letter here in verses 17 and 18 of Romans chapter 6. He says, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Same basic idea. Smooth, flattering speech. And they deceive people. They draw them in. They they accumulate to themselves disciples, as it were, and set them on the broad path to destruction. Now, what's interesting about this is uh, earlier in chapter 15 and verse 14, Paul commends the church in Rome as being a relatively mature kind of church. Verse 14, chapter 15 
He says, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. You are a relatively mature body. And yet I need to warn you about these ones who will come in to deceive you. And, and listen, they are smooth. They are polished. They are, they are experts at masquerading. And if you are not careful, they will take you in. First John, again. First John chapter 2. Verses 18 and 19. First John 2, 18 and 19. John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were all that they all are not of us. Why do I bring you to that passage? Just to show you that, that they are in the body. That's what John says. They have, they have insinuated themselves into the believing community. And in this case, you know now who they are, John says, because they have been expelled. They would not stay any longer. They, they were preaching their heresies about Christ, but they have been confronted. And now, they, having been unmasked, having been exposed for who they really are, they now flee the body. They're dangerous because they're among you. Jude. Jude chapter 1, which is the only chapter there is. Verses 12 and 13. These are the men who are hidden reeves in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. They're like a hidden reef in your love feast. The love feast, the, the agape, the, the, the fellowship meal that was so important in the early church as they expressed their, their, their unity in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile together in one body. And they are, are, are insinuated themselves to the place where they're part of this love feast. And yet Jude says, listen, they are like a hidden reef. They're going to rip the bottom out of the boat when you seek to pass over it. They're clouds without water. That, that is, a, they promise something helpful, but they don't deliver. They're, they're an autumn tree that should be full of fruit, but they have none. In fact, they're doubly dead. Wild waves casting up sin and shame. Wandering stars meaning they're worthless for navigational purposes. The blackest darkness has been reserved for them. They have insinuated themselves in and among the people of God. I missed one earlier, so I'm going to back it up there. Um, uh, whoever is working that, Sean. To uh, 1 John 2. Take you back there to 1 John 2. No, that's not what I want. I want 2 John he probably had the right slide up there, didn't he? Second John 1, that's what I want. There you go. Thank you, sir. Second John 1, beginning here in uh, verse 7, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not accomplish, try it again, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver in the Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. They, they seek entrance into the community of believers and they seek entrance into the leadership of the community of believers. They want to be the teachers. And John says, don't even let them through the door. Don't let them through the door. You know, it's interesting. Heresy always pleads for tolerance. Heresy always pleads for tolerance. The notion that we've sort of adopted here in our foolish time is that we must be fair-minded. We need to look at all the viewpoints. Let's, you know, let's just invite everybody here and they can give their viewpoint and we'll sort of, you know, evaluate their viewpoints and so forth. That is so dangerous. So dangerous. John says, no, 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 you don't invite this guy into your home, here into your, into your essentially home church. You don't invite him in to, to lay out his wares. Why? Because he is incredibly deceptive. You cut it off at the pass and you refuse him entrance. When you know the truth, you don't have to be broad-minded. You need to be narrow-minded. In fact, you need to be so narrow that you can see through a keyhole with both eyes at the same time. <laughs> when it comes to the truth, that's how narrow you need to be. We don't need to know what they have to say. We shouldn't be so arrogant to think that we're not capable of being drawn in by their deception. Refuse them entrance. Refuse them entrance. They are deceptive individuals. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. To the church of Thyatira, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Leading people astray. Deceiving people. Appealing to the base nature of people. Appealing to sensuality. And by that, drawing away the members of the community. In our modern time, folks, this is the health and wealth gospel. This is the, these are the, the TV preachers. Not all of them, but certainly a number of them who peddle the gospel for their own personal gain. Who would seek to enslave and ensnare you who appeal to the basic greed in your nature. Send me money. I will pray for you and God will make you rich. Or those that, whose teaching advocates antinomianism. Antinomian, anti, against, nomos, law. Against the law of God. Saying it doesn't matter how you live. Hey, it's all a grace. You know, we're saved by grace and It's all under the cross, and you can do whatever you want. You can't. You can't do whatever you want. The way is narrow. The gate is narrow. The way of life is a a rigorous way. It is the broad path that is the popular path. It is the broad path that basically says, hey, you can do it however you want it. You can carry your baggage with you. You You can pursue it any way you like. It's the path of destruction. 2 Corinthians adds a little light to this whole issue of the deceptive nature of the false teacher. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. Paul says such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. 
For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, those whose end will be according to their deeds. Hey, Satan's the master deceiver. We should expect those who are employed by him to practice deception as well. They are deceivers. They disguise themselves. They put themselves forwards as servants of righteousness, teachers of the way of truth, when in the reality it is the way of hell. Colossians chapter 4. Try it again, chapter 2. There are four chapters in Colossians, though, so that's good. Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. Colossians 2 and verse 4. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, who is being troubled by these false teachers. I say this so that no one will, be, will uh, delude you with persuasive argument. Verse 8, see to it, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. This gives us a little insight into the deceptive nature of the false teacher, the false prophet, and that is that they are often masters of philosophy. They can spin an argument, they can, they can craft a, a discussion. They are, they are often well-versed in linguistics, so they can, they can spin their argument linguistically and philosophically, and they can pull it all together in such a way, twisting and redefining words and sucking you in. You meet them on your doorsteps sometimes. They use the same terminology that you use but they mean vastly different things by it. They are deceptive, dangerous. Oh, that's another D for another day. They are deceptive individuals. Now you'll have to come back to see how that one works. You've got to be very careful. Very careful. They are wordsmiths. They are wordsmiths. They are good with words. And we naively can fall into the trap of of basically saying, hey, we're using the same terminology. We must mean the same thing. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'll give you one last one, and then we'll close it down for today. They are deceptive in that they deceive the church with regard to end times events. So for this, we need uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's writing to this, this church in Thessalonica, that great little church here, but it's undergoing severe persecution. And he writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. He's talking about the rapture that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And he goes on. Paul has instructed this church to, to understand that the rapture will come, First Thessalonians chapter 4, it will begin the events. And yet because this church is, is undergoing such severe persecution, the false teachers have, have spoken to them, and I think uh, by a spirit, it's actually uh, speaking here about a false prophet, but apparently there was even things in writing, and it was it was pretended to have come by Paul and to say to them, you're in the day of the Lord. That is, somehow you're mixed up. The rapture never happened. And Paul says, that's not true. That's not true. You are not in the day of the Lord. So these false teachers, these false prophets are, are looking to deceive the church with regard 
I'll just say it broadly, to the end-time events. Certainly, a man by the name of Harold Camping comes to mind. I've lost track of the number of times he has predicted the second coming, right? He's just not much of a mathematician, but he's not much of a theologian either. It's a false teacher, dangerous and deadly. And he has worked his havoc upon many unsuspecting. They're out there, folks. They are out there. They are Christ-denying, and they are exceedingly deceptive. And as you come back next week, we will continue to build out this profile. I give you these things not to scare the daylights out of you, although to sober you, to be sure. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In that we take great comfort. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just really getting started here. There's more, much more to come. That we might understand the spiritual danger that surrounds us. Our Father, in this political season in which the airwaves are crammed full of hysterical messages, it is easy for us to, to get pulled down to mere earthly things. Not that there's no significance to the events of November, for there is, to be sure. But, our Father, there is a danger that is far more serious, far more deadly. And it is the the danger of the false prophet, the false teacher, who would seek to eternally destroy. Our Father, thank You that Your Word gives us so much information that we can be properly informed and thus properly on guard. I pray, O Lord, that You would enable us to begin to process the things we have heard this morning and will hear, Lord willing, in the the week or so to come, that You would help us to be vigilant. Let us keep our eye on Christ, the true plumb line. We pray in His name. Amen.